0: Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off impress manicure and press on falsies.
1: When you think about it, when we're born, influence is actually our only means of survival. We don't have, like other animals have, any means of protecting or even feeding ourselves, and we depend on other people to take care of us. And we use our skills of influence even before we can speak. But influence is ultimately, interpersonal influence, is the only way that we make great things happen.
0: Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast, a show that explores the mind, soul, science, and health as we speak with world leading experts each week. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and happiness researcher. Life is not straightforward, so join me as we navigate being human together and become what I like to call flexible thinkers. I believe that curiosity and education is the route for more happiness, love, connectedness, and the doorway to unlocking your unlimited potential. I hope you join me on the journey. On today's show, we have a world-leading persuasion expert, Zoe Chance, who helps great people become more influential. At Yale School of Management, she teaches one of the most popular courses called Mastering Influence and Persuasion. Her research has been published in top academic journals, and even Google has used her behavioral economics framework as the basis for their global food policy. Zoe speaks internationally with her TEDx talk, How to Make a Behaviour Addictive, Going Viral. Prior to teaching at Yale, Zoe managed a 200 million segment of the Barbie brand Mattel and has a doctorate from Harvard Business School. Her new book, Influence is Your Superpower, the science of winning hearts, sparking change and making good things happen is truly fantastic and every single person should read it. What is the favorite quote you like to return to often and why?
1: My favorite quote is a quote by Polly Murray, who is a Black American feminist legal scholar. And she said, when my brothers draw a line to keep me out, I draw a bigger circle to keep them in. And to me, this is the essence of inclusivity. And I am inspired by her and people like her to write the book and do the work that I do because she didn't have as much influence as she should have had, even though she was so successful. And one of our biggest legal cases in history was Brown versus the Board of Education, which stopped segregation in American schools. She was writing the legal arguments, but because she was Black, she couldn't get a job in law. And she was working as a typist for Betty Friedan, who was a white American feminist. And I'm angry on her behalf, and I'm excited to be able to help all of us be as influential as we could be and not let things stop us. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? It's a little bit embarrassing, Poppy, but it's about not having to be perfect. (laughs) And I have been so excited for this book launch and, Part of me had this idea that suddenly when you get to be a published author, you're a different person and you aren't the flawed person that you used to be. But I woke up on launch day in the morning. I had an interview with Chris Evans on his breakfast show, 4.30 in the morning, and I go to my car and I'm locked out of the garage because it's four in the morning and the garage is not open. So I have to run home, figure out how to do this from a home studio. Then later in the day, I have a Yale event Launching this book, there are hundreds of people. This one is virtual. And I've miscommunicated with my mom, who's in my house, not explaining clearly enough what this event is. And she keeps walking around and banging things. And I was still having this oh, you're not allowed to get out of the chair, Zoe. You couldn't get out of a chair during an interview. So I'm just being embarrassed and joking about my mom. And then I, I was thinking, like, on day one of book launch, you're still trying to be perfect. And people love you not because you're perfect, but because you're human and you're not perfect.
0: Thank you so much for those stories, because it's a daily reminder to that exact point. We are loved because we're not, and we won't be loved more because we think, you know, we're going to get there. Yeah. How do you understand your concept of
1: soul? I was driving here this morning and wondering whether I was going to tell you this, and apparently I am. Um, I had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And I have been not just not religious, but pretty prejudiced against Christians and working on that in my heart. And so I don't even know what the answer is, but I'm openly questioning.
0: Would you mind me asking what happened?
1: Yeah, I was asking for guidance. And then I had this experience that it wasn't a dream. It was an experience and this presence that was very clearly Jesus came and was the way that people have told me that Jesus Christ was all, my whole entire life, but I had never expected or understood that there was this just loving being, making an invitation of friendship with more love and no judgment. And so I'm confused and I'm also Really happy, and I feel very vulnerable (laughs) sharing this publicly. And so, people who are in my academic circles and things will think that I had a dream or something, and that's okay. Um, But I think some people listening to this show will understand it in a different
0: way. Very much so. And I really appreciate that you did share that with us because you are right. And I can feel the edge between the science and the logic and the research that you have in your profession. I'm so looking forward to hearing uh, hopefully how that unfolds and maybe your second book uh, can (laughs) be something around this because your, your first book definitely doesn't lack soul or spirituality. It very much has it incredibly intact And and sown in between like the beautiful research and behavioral economics and the neuroscience that you've put into understanding how influence happens. So I'd love to start off with just a general question, this idea of why is influence so important? And at the beginning of the book, you talk about it's linked to our survival. And I thought that was fascinating.
1: When you think about it, when we're born, influence is actually our only means of survival. We don't have like other animals have any means of protecting or even feeding ourselves. And we depend on other people to take care of us. And we use our skills of influence even before we can speak. And we're practicing influence. Small children get very comfortable with it. Sit so first they're saying no, they're asking, then they're saying no, and then they're doing all this negotiating. But at some point in grade school, maybe high school, our parents and our teachers have trained us that we're not supposed to try to get what we want, except by working very hard to be deserving. And what ends up happening is that influence, which is power, flows to the power-hungry people who study and practice influence. But influence is ultimately, interpersonal influence is the only way that we make great things happen and we get great things done. So since the dawn of human history, we've been able to work together and collaborate in groups and increasingly large communities through these skills of interpersonal influence. And then in the 20th century, influence got co-opted by sales and marketing into this tacky, greedy, manipulative thing. So I've written this book to shift that and democratize influence.
0: And in the first part of the book, you kind of go through 10 of the reasons, like the misconceptions around influence. What were some of those? So, well, one of these is just a simple misconception that influential
1: people can get anyone to do anything, like this idea that you can sell ice to an Eskimo if you're a good salesperson. And it's so not true. It's so hard to persuade People to change their mind. And it's so hard to persuade people who disagree with you to agree with you. But in contrast, it's very easy if you work on it to get people who agree with you to take action. So we're focusing our efforts in the wrong direction in a lot of this. And I'm not saying we can't persuade people, but you know, you don't want people to be trying to change your mind. You have an opinion for a good reason, because it's right. Another one is that if so, smart, kind people will think. If I just give that person the facts, they'll make the right decision because the answer is obvious. But it's not just that we don't all interpret the facts the same way. It's that facts are far less persuasive than we think. And I talk about in the book how our initial responses are visceral and emotional and unconscious, and it's likely we're not even paying attention to the facts, not even evaluating them. Another one that's important is just that asking for more will make people like us less. We have a lot of misconceptions about what people think of us based on the asking that we do or the no's that we say. And it's really about how we interact with
0: people and not what we're asking for or how we're saying no, which we find out through practice. This kind of links to a further chapter you have about How you want to teach women, especially how to negotiate, because I do find that not to be too gendered, but I do find that asking element seems to be something that women on the whole who have been conditioned as women struggle with most.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is a book that's not written for women, but because it's written by a woman and I do a lot of work teaching women and women's leadership workshops and things like that. I have a strong interest and a lot of experience with some gender issues related to influence and negotiation. I don't like putting people into boxes, but Mm. sometimes learning about differences can be liberating. So all of us are more similar than we are different, but in general, women get asked for help more often we are less comfortable asking for help or asking for money and we feel more pressure to say yes so we are also less comfortable saying no and we hate negotiating more than men do so these are just some of the differences to know you're not alone but the the one prescriptive thing that makes women angry sometimes when i share it and i don't blame you if it does is that women get judged much more harshly than men do for not being warm.
0: Yeah, I'm fascinated. Is it a conditioned response that women struggle or is it evolutionary?
1: It's really hard to say. In the world of social psychology, evolutionary psychology gets a bad rap because it's unprovable by definition. So there are theories that we talk about. I find it fascinating, but like, is it evolutionary? Is it not? I don't think anyone can ever say, but what I do find really interesting is I don't think that these differences are ultimately based in gender. I think they're ultimately based in power. And you see these kinds of gender differences in social psychology being far less pronounced in countries where women have more economic parity with men. And it's situational. So in some situations, you feel you have more power. And I'm putting this in air quotes, but as a woman, you may find yourself acting more like a man. And men, you may find yourself in situations where you have or feel you have less power. And you may find yourself, air quotes again, acting more like a woman.
0: So essentially, our ability to influence fluctuates deeply on the environment and how much perceived power we think we have.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. There's a psychologist at the University of Texas named James Pennebaker, who he has this incredibly nerdy book that I loved that's called The Secret Life of Pronouns. And he's done all of this research on not the kind of pronouns that we talk about a lot, Mm. but first person pronouns. So I, me, mine, and how this relates to power and status. And we use fewer of those first person pronouns when we have more power or status when we feel that we do and we use more of them when we don't and he finds that that's true even for himself so even for himself when he looked at his emails and when he was writing to someone of higher status because he felt low power and insecure he's using a lot of first-person pronouns like i think i was just wondering and contrast same guy But different contexts where he's writing emails to PhD students who are at the bottom of the academic hierarchy. And he's saying things like, Would you be willing to move your office? Here's the situation, without referring to himself at all. We have our attention focused on ourselves when we feel insecure, when we don't have power, and we just can't help it. But this is a very uninfluential stance or way of being. It's not that. We should never talk about ourselves, but it helps if we're conscious of when we get self-conscious, it turns people off a little bit. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and
0: still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? Right. What skills do you find yourself most teaching people when it comes to being more persuasive?
1: Well, ironically, what I find most helpful is to start with saying no and practicing saying no. That's not where anybody would expect to begin, but I'll share why in a minute. But I'll give you the challenge first. The challenge is to say no for 24 hours. 24-hour no challenge where you say no to every single person who asks you for something, whether it's small, whether it's big, whether you want to, you don't want to, personal, professional, it might feel terrifying before you do it. What you find out as you practice saying no is that first of all, you don't die. (laughs) Second of all, nobody hates you. Third of all, people actually weren't expecting you necessarily to say yes. Lots of times it's not a big deal. When somebody asks you, you you feel obligated. Many of us, we're mostly people pleasers. And as you're saying no, you're realizing that the way that you say it, so if you say it with warmth and maybe with playfulness or just very simple, no, no, thank you, people are reacting to you based on your tone rather than your rejection most of the time. And of course, you get a lot of time back. And you start to look back on your life and kick yourself for not having done this sooner. However old you are, you wanted to learn to say no years and years ago. And you're thinking of what, how much bandwidth you could have had. However, that's that's not all. But wait, there's more. When you begin practicing saying no, you also begin more to be more comfortable hearing other people say no. And it's not that it's ever a pleasure, right? It's not, but it gets more comfortable. And so you have less fear when you're asking and you lose that edge of neediness when you're making requests that can end up feeling kind of repulsive on the other side. So starting with no, try no for 24 hours. And let me give you a couple caveats if you're going to do the challenge. Number one, don't ruin your life. So if you get your dream job offer or your (laughs) sweetie proposes marriage to you or whatever big thing you've been waiting for, don't be like, no. (laughs) Secondly, you can change your mind. So it doesn't mean that you can't go back and say, well, actually, you know, I was thinking about it and it doesn't mean that the no has to be permanent, but experience what that feels like to you, experience the other person's reaction. Thirdly, when you're saying no, If there's somebody that you're spending a lot of time with, just say no the first time to the first thing so that it's not like, you know, your roommate that you're saying no to for 24 hours and they're like, what's wrong with you? Why do you hate me now? The last thing is just be very simple. So if you're making a lot of excuses and explanations, first of all, it's unpleasant, frankly, for the other person. Uh, But second of all, if that person is good at persuasion, they will jump on those excuses And try to solve them for you, and then you will feel that you have accidentally gotten manipulated into saying yes. So try out just saying no, no thank you, you know, it's not for me, I'm really not interested. And I guess one more is the advanced, (laughs) the advanced version of this to play with for if you're already pretty comfortable saying no, is to try the warm, enthusiastic no. Like, oh, I love you, but I would never, ever, ever in my wildest dreams say yes
0: to that. I think someone once said to me, I love you, but it's a no. And I actually thought that was a really sweet way because it was such confirmation of love. And you can't really be, you can't even try to persuade them at that point because you're like, yeah. oh, well, you do love me, so okay. Yeah, and and there's no excuse. So in the book, you write about the curious qualities of charisma. What do you mean by that? The
1: qualities of charisma are curious because they're paradoxical in many ways. And all of us know charisma when we see it, right? It We know who's charismatic. We know who's not. We know that our attention is drawn to charismatic people, but we don't know why. If you were going to strip your clothes off and run through the office, people would pay attention to you, but that's not probably the kind of attention that you want to have. And it's definitely not charismatic. So we have a hard time defining charisma. And the first paradox is that if you are trying to be charismatic, you're failing. So if you are trying to be the center of attention, you're just being a jackass and you're not Mm. being charismatic at all. And another big paradox of charisma is that when you want to be charismatic in front of a group of people, you focus on one person. So to connect with many, you connect with one. And then the third paradox of charisma is that you get attention by giving your own
0: attention. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. Is that also a tip you often give people who are struggling with public speaking? Yeah, and this
1: can be public speaking in front of a large group of people. And it, it could be speaking just in a meeting that you have with your team. Uh, but the charisma tips that I share in the book are particularly applicable for public speaking. And um, we don't think of charisma that often in a one-on-one context, although we can absolutely practice it and feel it. And in the book, I share the story about to encourage the idea that you absolutely can learn to be charismatic how I went to a Prince concert and Prince was a musician that I had loved since childhood. I was so excited and he's so charismatic. So I go and I'm in this little club and he comes on stage. He looks into, I'm sure, sure that he looks into my eyes and his first line is something like, are we alone? And I turned to my friend, like, Oh my God, I'm going to faint. And then the woman (laughs) on the other side of me, a total stranger, she drops falls in a dead faint, unconscious on the floor and the paramedics come and they pick her up. And I said, Oh my God, has that ever happened before? They said, it's not unusual. Prince was so freaking charismatic that people fainted from the power of his electric focused connection, his attention, but he hadn't been born like that at all. And when he was first getting started in music and even well on his way, and he had a number one album or a number one song in the billboard charts. It was, I want to be your lover. Warner Brothers wouldn't send him on tour because as a performer, he sucked. He was so shy and he would turn his back to the audience and he would sing beautifully. But when he had to speak to them, he couldn't speak above a whisper. So I write in the book about how he emulated Rick James. Rick James, king of funk, invites him to come on a tour and Prince starts practicing charisma until it becomes natural. And this is a big deep lesson about influence that when you are practicing these skills they feel awkward at first and after a while they become natural so that you don't have to think about these kinds of skills that you're using so don't expect it to be um, entirely easy or pleasant or feel good the students in my class so the real name is mastering influence and persuasion but the students call it doing uncomfortable things that make you a
0: better person (laughs) and what do you ask them to do Which uncomfortable things do students find most helpful for their personal development? Some of the simple things that we're
1: talking about, like asking and saying no, lots of negotiating. We do weekly challenges of all different types. They have challenges like a simple one that I'm not sure why it feels so uncomfortable, but it's to reach out to a hero. Reach out to someone who has made a difference in your life in a meaningful way. And you shower them with love. You find out how to contact them and you just write them a beautiful personal love letter about the difference that they've made for you. And it's actually scary just to reach out to someone and we've actually heard back from a lot of these people when we've reached out. Um, one of my students I write about in the book reached out to Susan Kane, who wrote the book, Quiet. And she's a role model for introverts everywhere. Yeah. I love her, he loved her. And he ended up reaching out and he was offering to help and to give her free help. He worked for her all summer long. And then at the end of the summer, she said, Davis, you're great. And she paid him for the whole summer that he had worked. Oh. and then she invited him to be her very first employee after the CEO that she had hired. And uh, he actually said no. (laughs) so he used two of the techniques from the course he did and she encouraged him he had another fabulous job offer and she encouraged him to take that path and they're still friends can I share another story of a, a simple challenge that we did and this is not as simple as the hero challenge or the no challenge but it's very fun if you feel like doing it it's a rejection challenge and you go out and you try to get rejected what we do in class is we watch this video by a man named Jia Zhang, who has a hundred days of rejection blog. And he was a business school student who graduated, wanted to be an entrepreneur, and he was just uncomfortable with rejection like all of the rest of humanity. So he started practicing every day, trying to get rejected. And if you're going to watch one video of Jia's, make it the Krispy Kreme video from day three, and I won't give you the spoiler. But what we do in class is just pick any of these challenges of JAWS or make up our own where we go try to get rejected. One of my favorites is a student named Jason who decided to get rejected trying to crash his seven-year-old neighbor's birthday party. (laughs) And this man, he's a mixed martial arts competitor. He's a He's a bodybuilding competitor. So he looks like a young grizzly bear. And he goes to his next door neighbor's backyard. He's never met them. He's never spoken with them. The seven-year-old is having a birthday party and they, she has a bouncy house and the kids are in line for the bouncy house. And so Jason just walks into their yard and gets in line for the bouncy house. And he's like, hey, what's up? And so he's expecting to get kicked out and he's going to tell me he was successfully rejected. But they think that it's so funny that he's just walked over to be part of her party. And so the kids are talking with him. The parents are talking with him they end up all making friends and that family invites Jason back he graduated that year they invited him back to our hometown of New Haven and he came for her eighth birthday party and her ninth birthday party the years later
0: it's so sweet and also to your point it's amazing what happens when you're looking for rejection suddenly inclusion happens
1: Yeah, it's a huge misconception. That should have been one of the top 10 because it's maybe the biggest one that people are so much nicer than we expect.
0: Why do you think we have such strong held beliefs that people are not nice or people are scary or people don't want the best for us or people are going to say no? We have, and I'm sure that this part is evolutionary.
1: Our brains and our endocrine system is designed for threat detection for our survival. And so when we experience pain or danger, we have a very deep physiological experience that motivates us to try to never let that happen again. And with social rejection, we experience that as physical pain. Our brain processes it in the same areas that it processes physical pain. There's a really interesting study by a neuroscientist named Naomi Eisenberg. I hope I'm getting that right from the university of Los Angeles. And she was putting participants in an fMRI scanner where you have a video screen and she's scanning your brain while you're participating in this three-way game of catch. And you're tossing the ball, you're receiving the ball. All three of you are tossing and receiving the ball. And then the other two people that you see on the video screen, the other two participants start excluding you and just tossing the ball between themselves you don't know that actually those people are fake and this you're the only person in the experiment. And what she wants to know is what happens to your brain. And she's the person who discovered that the areas of your brain that process physical pain are the areas that light up when you feel rejected. This is why we do so much to avoid rejection and we don't get enough practice with rejection. And we don't get practice with small rejections in order to build resilience that we need to be making the audacious asks and pursuing our big dreams that we want to, that we would if we didn't fear rejection so much. So it's not that rejection gets to be fun, it just gets to be a lot easier and it doesn't stop you. And if you are going out seeking rejection, it's this Aikido influence move where you've created a win-win situation where if you get the thing, you win. And if you get
0: rejected, you win. I love that because it starts to pave the way for us to have a win-win perspective in everything if we turn rejection actually into this wonderful practice
1: yeah and we celebrate rejections and we in class so it's so fun if you can do this with a friend or a supportive group of people you can do it on your own like Ja did but we celebrate we clap yay i failed (laughs) and you get a round of applause (laughs) it's nice we can positively reinforce each other and build those positive neural connections for rejection and failure and if you're not getting rejected if you are not failing that's a very clear sign that you are not playing big enough.
0: In in one of your talks, you talk about the six human needs and how they play into us becoming persuaded by someone else or obviously, to end point, addicted to something else. What are the six human needs and why are they so important in how we make decisions? So first of all, the six human needs is not my
1: framework. That was just me trying to be helpful Um, When I got invited to give a TED talk in a conference on um, how do you build a movement? And I was like, I don't know anything about building a movement, but I've been to a bunch of Tony Robbins workshops, so I'm going to share Tony Robbins framework. And I tried to give some science to support the fact. I don't know that these are the six human needs, but those are six human needs that each one of them definitely is important. I didn't practice enough for my TED talk, and I kept changing it until the very morning of the TED talk as I was practicing it. And I only remembered five of them when I shared this TED talk. And most people don't notice, but this was one of the biggest lessons in humility. This talk has been viewed by close to a million people and about 10% of the comments are like, what was number six? What was number six? I went through all, all six of them but there were only five. And I kept saying six human needs. And I I went through them twice. And um, the one that I forgot was contribution. And that was my favorite one.
0: It's so funny. And also I wrote down in my notes, I'm like, oh, must ask her about the six human needs. And you didn't even tell me the sixth. And I didn't even notice. I mean, that just says everything about our supposed mistakes.
1: Yeah, that it's not such a big deal to other people. And the sixth one that was so important that I didn't share in that talk is the need to co- need for contribution. And that's something that we're not thinking of when we are asking someone for something, that actually we're giving them an opportunity to fulfill the need that they have to contribute. And I don't mean to be saying People are always looking to fulfill that need with your specific request. But there are so many opportunities that we're missing out on when people would have been glad to. Can I share the paperclip story? Yes, please do. Okay, because this is directly connected. And it was, this is such an inspiring story to me. When I had two students who traded up in this game, this is another one of the challenges. So, in this challenge, the bigger and better game, you start with a paperclip, and you trade it up for something bigger and better and bigger and better. In class, we do this for a week. And you come back and have show us the biggest, best thing that you got. It's scary and hard to do this game because it's unraveling our norms of reciprocity, where usually, if you're asking someone for a favor, you're trying to do a complimentary similar favor. But we're saying, no, nope, they have to do something bigger for you than you do for them. And it's like, it could be physical size, it could be value, whatever, however you define big. But the craziest outcome that there's been is two students, Manis and Tom, who traded up in four days, 10 trades from a paperclip to a Volkswagen from a car dealership in New Haven, where we live. They were ready to call all of the car dealerships in our state. They had to call only one and they shared the game and their fun, warm perspective. And their vision was to trade up for a car to donate it to a refugee family. And they gave it to a refugee organization. And an Afghan family came here to our school to pick up the car so that the mom could be able to drive to work instead of commuting for two hours each way on the bus. And the person at the car dealership, she comes to our class and she is the one who feels lucky that she got to participate in this beautiful thing because her need for contribution was being fulfilled so deeply. So don't sell yourself short by not asking someone for something that you think is too big. And this comes back to the, we think people won't like us if we ask for too much. Sometimes asking for more has people
0: like us even more. So I would love to touch upon some of the tips you share about how to spot a manipulator, the hot and cold, the funny feeling. And in this chapter is called defense against the dark arts, which is brilliant. Would you mind sharing some of those tips that we should all keep in our back pocket?
1: Yeah, sure. So let's start with a funny feeling. This is your spidey sense or your intuition telling you that maybe Things are not as they seem. Maybe this person isn't being genuine or maybe you shouldn't be in this place where you are. There's a book called The Gift of Fear that was written by a man named Gavin De Becker, who is the world's foremost expert in personal security. He said, based on the thousands of interviews he's done with victims of personal violence, so that's the extreme version of a bad actor, right? But people who've experienced personal violence Pretty much all of them had this sense, this funny feeling that there was something wrong and they ignored that. It's the simplest, most pervasive, most important, and most complicated red flag because this funny feeling can also come from social biases And I share a story of a former student who's a British diplomat. So I I train students and I also train executives and leaders. And he was talking about when he was on the tube, this is in London, and it was shortly after the 7-7 bombings. And the man who sits down across from him is where he's a Muslim, he's wearing a prayer cap, and he opens up a Quran and he's praying and he's carrying a gym bag and my student is saying how scared he is because there's a pervasive fear at that point in time. And he doesn't know what's in the gym bag. And he's wondering, should I tell someone? He's wondering, should I get off the train? What should I do? Should I ignore this funny feeling that I have? And he ends up getting off the train. He decides not to tell anyone. But the irony of the situation is that the man that he's looking at, well-dressed, Middle Eastern man, Muslim, carrying a bag, is actually exactly what this student looks like to everyone else. He is also a Middle Eastern man, well-dressed, carrying a bag. And he, even though he knows that that's how people can see him, he can't help that funny feeling that he has. What we can do though, is we can at least notice, is this person that we have a funny feeling about trying to persuade us to do something that is very different From a person that we have a funny feeling about trying to live their life like the man who's praying on the train. So funny feeling is the most important. And we need to also be asking ourselves, is there some bias that's coming into this? So that's the deepest, biggest one.
0: That is so much to think about in terms of our own biases and how that is driving our decisions um, and behavior and it's so relevant to everything we do every single day. How can people find you and this brilliant book?
1: You can find me
0: at zoechance.com. There's links to the book there,
1: and there are links to join the newsletter. And if you decide to join the newsletter, then I will let you know when this course comes out in the summer as well, how to ask for anything.
0: Thank you so much, Zoe, for this insightful, educational, and inspiring interview. Thank you so much, Poppy. It's such a pleasure talking with you, and I love your show thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Hold up.